know, it's a wonderful thing when someone is excited about the Lord. We tend to be moved by other people's excitement. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145 tonight. Whether it's about religious things, worship, or other less important things, we tend to be moved by the excitement that other people express. When I was in my early 20s, I was invited by some friends to attend a Penn State football game at Happy Valley. And I'd never been before or, frankly, since to a game to watch Penn State play. Although I would occasionally catch a Penn State game on television, I wasn't necessarily a dyed-in-the-wool fan. It wasn't all that important to me. But I will never forget being in a stadium with 100... I think that day they had 105,000 people packed into the stands. And when the home team came out on the field... I had never heard noise like that. And there was something about it. It was like a wave that kind of carried me along. And then in our section where we were seated way up in the highest part where you could hardly see anything anyway, there was this crazy guy who had a cowbell. And he would run up and down the steps, ringing the cowbell. And every time he came by, everybody would just go, ah! It was insane. And I was right there in the middle of it, acting crazy with everybody else. Because there's something about when people are excited, when someone else is excited, it, it brings you along with the... With the I don't know, what they're feeling and what they're expressing tends to move you to feel the same thing. Our emotions are like that. Now, Psalm 145, which we're about to read, is titled, David's Psalm of Praise. And we know that David has, humanly speaking, has been used by God to write most of the psalms that are in the book of Psalms. And many of them are psalms of praise. But there's something special about Psalm 145 that it is titled David's Psalm of Praise. In this sense, the way that it is intended, this is, this is his greatest work, in his opinion. This is... This is, of all the praise songs that David has written, this is the one that sticks out in his mind as the pinnacle, the greatest. And it becomes clear, and you'll see it as we read the psalm, that David intends not only to praise God, but he wants to bring us along with him. He is intending to move us to worship. Tonight I've titled the message from Psalm 145, Extol the King. And in verse 1, the psalmist writes, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Extol the king. Can you sense it? David is expecting that by the time we get done reading this psalm, we're going to want to join our voice to the chorus. We're going to want to give some value to God and to his majesty and his mercy and his kindness and all that he's done for us. In this psalm, there's several distinct sections where David is calling us to extol the king. In verses 1 through 3, he calls us to extol the king for his greatness. In verses 4 through 6, he wants us to extol the king for his majestic works. In verses 7 through 9, he wants us to extol him for his mercy. In verses 10 through 13, for his kingdom. In verses 14 through 16, for his grace. In verses 17 through 20, we're called to extol him for his holiness. And finally, in the refrain, in verse 21, he calls out to all flesh, everyone that has a tongue, anyone that can make a sound, give praise to God, extol him forever and ever. Now go with me through this text, if you will, and see if your heart isn't moved to worship the Lord and to extol him tonight. That word extol, which is used in verse 1, means to exalt or to lift up. It's the idea of lifting up the Lord so that all can see. And of course, you know, we don't literally lift him up. But the idea is with what we say and, and, and with the, the passion that we exhibit, we want to lift him up so that other people can see how much we value him, uh, how much we treasure our relationship with him, how good he has been to us. And 
So David says in Psalm 145, verse 1, I will extol thee. He's extolling God for his greatness. He's determined to bless the name of the Lord forever, he says in verse 1. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Now, you might ask the question with me tonight, how does one bless the Lord and his name? It seems as if he's already blessed and as if his name is blessed. Certainly, he's the God of all blessing. But David indicates that it's possible to bless the Lord and to bless his name. And the way that we do so, according to this passage, is by calling attention to the character and the works of God. In other words, by praising him, we bless him. And David says, I'm determined to do this, and I'm determined to do this, verse 2, every day. Every day will I bless thee. David is not giving us a future vision of praise, something that will happen way off in eternity when we get to heaven and get our glorified body and all the troubles of this world slip away. Then I'll be ready to praise God. He says, no, every day, in, right now, In the nasty now and now, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to extol you for your greatness. David is eager to begin praising and blessing God, and he's intending to continue praising and blessing God all through eternity, which is what he says in verse 2, I will praise thy name forever and ever. And I want to point out to you there in verse number 2 that much of the material that we have for praising God is found in his name. His revelation of himself, his names describe his person. And as we begin to understand and comprehend better who God is, to develop a deep appreciation and understanding of the character and the nature of God, it brings us to a place where we say, Lord, I want to praise you and I want to praise your name forever and ever. As you and I admire God's person and his attributes that are described in his name, it ought to draw us on to the place of worship. But then notice verse 3, because he says he's extolling God for his greatness. So he says this, great is the Lord. He is great. This word great means he has tremendous magnitude. And in this case, it's speaking about the magnitude of his importance. And frankly... We can say tonight, great is the Lord, but then we're stretched to find the words to explain exactly what we mean of how great he is. We could think about the the most descriptive, superlative kind of words. We could put lots of endings on it to give emphasis, and we could try to make it sound even more dramatic, and we still would fall short of the greatness of the Lord. Great is the Lord. He is a great God. He is the preeminent one. He is the greatest of all. In fact, he's so great that he's the one who defines greatness in his character, in his person, in his holiness, in his works. He is great. When we think about greatness... We will always, because we know who he is, measure any sort of ascribed greatness to his greatness. And anything that we come up with will fall short of his greatness. He's great. Great is the Lord. 
and greatly to be praised. In other words, our praise should attempt to rise to the worthiness of His greatness. As great as He is, so great should be our praise of Him. Greatly to be praised. You and I are not eloquent enough to capture the sense of His greatness with words. We realize that we're frail and feeble and our attempts fall short, but that shouldn't stop us from trying. We should greatly praise the Lord because He is great. And then just to make sure that we understand what he's saying in verse 3, he reiterates, he emphasizes again, His greatness is unsearchable, meaning you can't find a bottom or a top of His greatness. His greatness is unable to be fully comprehended. You and I will never run out of reasons to exclaim about His greatness, if only we'll set our minds to the task. Now, some small-minded Christian will say, Oh, well, I tried to praise the Lord for His greatness the other day, and I ran out of reasons to praise Him. Well, I will readily admit that there have been times that because of my lack of deep thought and devotion to the Lord, I've run out of interest in praising God. I will confess that to you. But I also know that when I set my mind and heart to it, I never can find an end of reasons to praise His greatness because His greatness is unsearchable. Those who are bored with worship have a poor understanding of God or they've not learned to discipline their minds to deal with things that are hard, even impossible to comprehend. This is one reason why we cast aside worship, because it demands that we mull over in our mind things that are difficult or even impossible for our brains to categorize, because we are, after all, talking about the indescribable one, the one who defies our ability to completely comprehend He is incomprehensible, and yet he is worthy of our praise. Extol him for his greatness. But then in verses 4 through 6, extol him for his majestic works. And he says in verse 4, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. The the implication is that there is an older generation that has seen the hand of God, that has experienced God's works in their life, And they want to be sure to communicate to the next generation, to their children and to their grandchildren, how great God is. Lest their children should forget that the benefits that are enjoyed have come from God. Too often, young people who grow up in a Christian home dismiss the value of what they've been given because they just assume that's how it's supposed to be and that's how it's always been. They don't appreciate necessarily. They don't necessarily understand the blessings of God. Which is why it's significant and important for us as parents to make sure that we communicate to our children the greatness of the Lord. That we extol Him for His majestic works. You and I have been negligent if our children have not heard us speak often about the works of God in our lives. It is good for us to recount or to declare His mighty acts. To tell the next generation of what God has done and how good He is. One generation shall praise thy works. 
His mighty acts ought to be declared. Then look at verse 5. He says, I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. The majesty of Jehovah is seen in his wondrous works. And that word wondrous means they are, they are miraculous or marvelous. In other words, God does things that we can't understand, that we can't comprehend. He works in ways that, that we find difficult sometimes even to explain or to, to realize exactly how he could have done such a thing. But if you have seen God work in your life in a wondrous way, then you should do what the psalmist did. You should speak about it. You should tell people how great and how good God is and what his works are in your life. You and I have a responsibility to reveal to people around us by giving testimony about the fact that God does wondrous works. Has he answered prayer for you? Then you ought to share that with someone. You ought to tell other people. And, and sometimes we say, I, I did, you know, I shared that with my brothers and sisters. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But there's a lot of other people in the world that don't know that there's a God who answers prayer. And they deserve to hear about his wonderful works. He goes on in verse 6 and he speaks about the works of God. In this way, he calls them his terrible acts. And that word terrible means things that cause us to fear and reverence God. They're things that cause us to be in awe of his person. So there are things that God does that we see with our own eyes and it causes our jaw to drop and say, oh my, that must be God. That's exactly what I prayed for. And God answered, there's no way that could have been manipulated. There's no way that could have been accidental. God must have done that. So when that happens, our response, of course, is appreciation for God. But it is also being brought to this place where we reverence Him. And we realize that He is a God who does things that are worthy of our worship. He's worthy of us fearing him. Because of this, in verse 6, he says we should speak plainly or declare the greatness and the works of God. He says, verse 6, men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. And the, the implication is, that he's going around telling people about what God has done for him. So extol him for his greatness and extol him for his majestic works. But then number three, verses seven through nine, extol him for his mercy. So in verse seven, he says, they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. You know, the theme of the first six verses is his greatness, his greatness in his works. But there's a clear uh, shift, if you will, in verse 7, and he begins talking about his goodness. Because not only is God great, he is good. God has deployed his great power to bring the good fruits of mercy to mankind. Because of this, 
As the psalmist says, you and I should abundantly utter the memory of his great goodness. Isn't that powerful? Abundantly utter the memory. Think about those words. That means we should talk about it a lot. It ought to be a common a common theme of our conversations. It ought not to be strange for people to hear us talk about how good God's been. Christians, let's get our lower lip out of the gravel. Walk around all the time moaning and groaning about all the things that we're upset about and Oh, the Democrats this, and the country this, and the economy that, and whoa. Your God is still good. He's still good, and you, you can still tell people how good he is, even if you look at some circumstances and you may not care. You, you might have some health problems. You might have some financial difficulties. You might have some burdens, undoubtedly, that you're bearing And yet, he deserves for us to abundantly utter the memory of his great goodness. I suggest that if more of our speech was centered on the memory of his great goodness, we'd probably feel a lot better too. Because our feelings tend to follow the things that we talk about. Extol him for his mercy. He goes on in verse 7 to say, "...and shall sing of thy righteousness." That means he's going to sing or the the theme or the subject of his song is going to be the righteousness of God. Now, what you're going to notice in these verses and, and then on in verse 14 through 16 and verses 17 through 20 is the is the bouncing back and forth between the righteousness of God and the goodness of God. The the justice of God and the grace of God. His mercy and the fact that he's going to mete out judgment. And sometimes we see these as opposite sides of God's character. But they're all parts of the same God who is always consistent. So we should make him the theme of our songs. It's appropriate for us when we sing to sing about what he's done for us. It's appropriate for us to sing about who he is and why we admire him and why we love him. It's appropriate for us to sing songs like, I love him because he first loved me. Now you'll notice in verse 8 some of his attributes are listed. He's called gracious. That word means he blesses us beyond anything that we deserve. And that's the truth, isn't it? Just think about your life for a moment. Think about what you have. Think about what God has given to you and understand you don't deserve one of those things. And yet, he's loaded you and I down with benefits every day. He's gracious. He also is seen in verse 7 as, or verse 8 as being full of compassion. And the idea that he's full of compassion means that he cares about you and I individually And intensely. When I think about this phrase, full of compassion, I picture the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry when he would focus on an individual with a need and he would give all of his attention and all of his care and all of his compassion to that person. And then I think, God treats me in that way. He's full of compassion. I don't deserve that. 
But that's how he treats me. That's how good he is to me. He's gracious. He's full of compassion. He also is slow to anger. Think with me for just a moment. Where would you and I be if God meted out judgment for sin in the moment that we sinned? And that's exactly what we deserve. But God is very patient. He gives opportunities for mercy. He's slow to anger. Could you imagine if he had as short of a trigger as you do? I'm so thankful that God is slow to mete out retribution. And then it says in verse 8, in case we're in any doubt, he is of great mercy. So now we've seen his greatness coupled with his goodness. And what does this mean in verse 9? It means that the Lord is good to all. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, or how you failed, you are a beneficiary of the goodness of God. The fact that you are alive, breathing, drawing sustenance from this world so that you can continue on with life, the fact that your eternal soul hasn't been snuffed out by God's power, that's His goodness. You're a recipient of His goodness. Without exception, all mankind benefits from the goodness of God, even the ones who say, I don't believe in God and I don't need Him. Well, actually, you desperately need Him. You're completely dependent upon Him, even if you defy Him and deny His existence. You depend upon Him for your every breath, and He's good enough to let you keep breathing. He is good to all, and I'm thankful for that. And his tender mercies are over all his works. That means that all the things that God does are characterized, marked, distinguished by his tender mercies. Wow. What a God. In everything that God does, he displays his tender mercies to us. We are recipients. So we should extol him for his mercy. If you've experienced His mercy, you ought to give Him thanks for it tonight. You ought to praise Him and honor Him. You ought to lift Him up. You ought to put Him on display and tell everybody around you, God has been so good to me and I don't deserve it. Extol Him forth of all for His kingdom in verses 10 through 13. He says in verse 10, All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. What he means is the works of God speak for themselves. Even if men don't praise Him, it's obvious that they should. It is utter foolishness to deny the works of Jehovah. Yet we have many people lining up, falling all over themselves to be first in line, to be the ones to deny the works of Jehovah. And yet this same great God, who is being denied and defied, is good to these men. But notice in this verse 10... All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. Those who are holy, we should say those who are made holy by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have a double reason to bless him. We ought to magnify his name. You and I should speak about him. Why? 
because he has a glorious kingdom, in verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. You know, one of the reasons that men do not want to submit themselves to God, don't want to admit that God exists, is because they're afraid that God will take rulership over their life and they don't want God to be in control of their life. And yet, it's, it's an irrational, self-destructive thought that we think when we decide, I can run my life better than God can. So if you're a saint and you know what it is to be in his kingdom, you ought to tell everybody that you can about how wonderful it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. To have his rule in your heart, to have him as your Lord. There is no better king than King Jesus. He's a good king. God is not in any controversy over his place of authority in this world. He's not at all worried about men who are about to talking about how they're going to overthrow God. Psalm 2 characterizes these men, the kings of the earth gather themselves. They set themselves in array. Oh, we're going to defeat God. We're going to overcome him. And Psalm 2 says, God sitting in the heavens will laugh. He shall have them in derision. And then the psalmist in Psalm 2 reminds us of our obligation. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Come to the son and embrace him. Embrace his lordship in your life, because otherwise you'll be crushed by his power, you see. So those who are faithful servants of the Lord who experience the the blessedness of his kingdom, we ought to speak to others about how wonderful it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. For you and I, his kingdom is glorious. That word glorious means it is honorable and splendorous. It's the best kingdom around. It's an honor to be in his kingdom. It's an honor to enjoy his authority in my life. You and I, when we think about his kingdom, verse 11, we should talk of his power. And that idea of his power is of his authority being deployed in my life. As he works and moves in my life, in real life experience, and I see God's might being deployed on my behalf, I ought to tell other people, it's wonderful to have a king like the Lord who is willing to answer prayer, who's willing to work on my behalf. He cares about those who are the subjects of his kingdom. And according to verse 12, this is something that ought to be shared with the sons of men, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. The emphasis here is on people who are not necessarily worshipers of Jehovah. There's people who need to know about the glories of the kingdom of God. Because they're under the rule of the God of this world. They're allowing themselves to be in bondage to sin. And there's an answer. They could be set free. They they could enjoy the glories of the kingdom of God. But we are responsible to share that with them. These men need to be notified of the mighty acts of God. One of those mighty acts that God did is he provided a redeemer. A redeemer to pay for the penalty of our sin so that we could be welcomed into the kingdom of God and the family of God, given a place where we don't deserve. It's the the greatest act, if you will, in the sense of the economy of God 
The thing that he puts his greatest emphasis on is what Jesus did on the cross so that we could experience the good news of the gospel. Men around us need to be notified of the mighty acts of God and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. It's a terrible disservice to God when God's people gripe and complain about how awful it is for God to tell them what to do. This is unseemly for a child of God. A child of God, of all people, should understand and appreciate the glories of His authority in their life, the, the wonders of His Lordship. They should, we should come to a place where we say, God is good, and even His authority is good in my life, and He wants to do good things in my life if I'll just submit myself to Him. Enough of this fearing that God is going to ruin your life if you surrender to Him. That's just fleshly nonsense. He's a good God who cares more about you than you've ever cared about yourself. Goes on to say His kingdom is everlasting and His dominion endures. Now this is wonderful in verse 13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Many people diminish the significance of God's kingdom because right now, in this generation, His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's the rule of Christ in the hearts of men, those who will be His willing subjects. Praise God for that kingdom. But the world looks at that kingdom and they say, doesn't seem like much of a kingdom to me. But little do they know. Little do they know what the king has in mind. What is coming. You know, one day there's going to be a glorious 1,000 year kingdom where Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth. One day there's going to be a heavenly kingdom where all of creation is going to recognize and extol his name. And if you're a child of God, you're going to get to be a part of that. Hey, listen, this is just the beginning stages of the kingdom. But it still is a glorious kingdom. And we ought to be telling everyone that we can about his everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that is looked down upon by men is the greatest kingdom of all. Is the greatest kingdom of all. Not will be. Is. It's a tremendous privilege to be a part of the kingdom of God. It may not seem like God's kingdom is very strong, but appearances are deceptive. Jesus seemed to indicate this in some of his parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, didn't he? We tend to look at these things and think, what could come of that? Don't underestimate God. Extol him for his kingdom. Then number five, extol him for his grace. We better get moving. Verse 14, his grace is very similar to his mercy. And you'll notice in verses 14 through 16 that the word grace is not used here, but it's obvious that these verses are speaking about the gracious nature of how God deals with man. The idea of grace is that God gives us richly many good things that we are undeserving of. This is a little bit different than mercy. Mercy being that God does not give us the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. Grace is when God not only doesn't punish us, 
But he heaps on all kinds of extra blessings that we don't deserve. It's like when I used to go to my grandma's house with my kids. My grandma, and she would do the same thing with me when I was a kid, and my dad would bring us there. And she'd say, now you be quiet. I'm serving the ice cream and the hot fudge. And I'm going to give them as much as I want them to have. And, of course, when Grandma was dishing, they always got a lot more than they needed. But that was her grace, you know. That's how she showed her love. We figured that out. So I I wanted her to know that I received her love, and I ate as much of it as I could. (laughs) Grace is when God just heaps on the blessings. He heaps on the goodness. Like, we we don't deserve it at all. But he gives us more and more and more. Verse 14, the Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. Are you weighed down? Are you heavy with some burdens? Tonight, are you stumbling and are you, are you struggling to walk in your Christian life? He's there to lift you up, to pick you up. You say, well, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be able to serve him. I, I've failed him so many times. Well, just let him pick you back up and keep on going because he's a good and gracious God who wants to restore you to his fellowship, extol him for his grace. You say, but I don't know how to respond to that. Just be thankful for it. Get up and keep moving. Verse 15, the eyes of all wait upon thee and thou givest them their meat in due season. The implication in verse 15 is that we're completely dependent upon him For everything, even the food that we eat, the sustenance that we need for our body, it all comes from God and our eyes are waiting upon Him. If He doesn't give it to us, we don't get it. We're completely dependent upon Him. There's not even any food without Him. Nothing to eat. He's the giver of every good thing. If there's a good thing that comes to us, it's always from God. And this is because God is interested in being gracious and good to man. He describes it in verse 16, Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. He's so good to us. He reaches out to us with his handful of gifts and he gives it to us because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he's full of compassion. So tonight, if you've experienced His grace, hint, you have. (laughs) Extol Him for His grace. And then, finally, verses 17 through 20, extol Him for His holiness. Now, again, there's no controversy between the righteousness, holiness of God and His grace. Sometimes we pit these qualities against each other and we say, you know, seems like they're opposite, but they're not. They're all part of the full picture of the character of God. In fact, if he were not righteous, he could not be gracious and good. And if he was not gracious and good, he could not be righteous. This is all a part of the comprehensive nature of God. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That means there is nothing that Jehovah does which is lacking in justice. He's always righteous. Now, the scripture does not say that we always understand what he has done. But make no mistake about it, whatever he does, it is right. It is just. It is good. 
all of his works are holy. That word holy means he is set apart. He is distinguished from man. His works are distinguished by his righteousness. His ways are righteous. His works are holy. And then it goes on to say in verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. That word nigh means he's right next to you. He's right there. Sometimes we get the feeling that God is far away. We get the feeling that in order to get a hold of him, I've got to shout. I've got to wave my arms. I've got to get his attention. But friend, I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture, he's right there. He's right next to you. It's like at night, sometimes Philip will be restless. He's our little guy. And when he's restless, sometimes I'll go in and lay next to him on his bed. And he'll be having a dream or something. You know, your kids probably did the same thing sometimes. Just erratic, they're not awake. And then I'll just reach over and put my hand on him. And when he feels my hand, I just calm down because he knows that I'm there. Even in his sleepy state, he knows that I'm there. He won't remember it in the morning. I'll ask him in the morning, do you remember what happened? No. But there's something about the touch of a father's hand. And that's exactly what this means when it says the Lord is nigh. It means that if you just call out to him, he's right there. He's nigh unto them that call upon him. Isn't that precious? It's an incredible thought that this holy God who is above and apart has made the choice to be near. Nigh. He's listening. He's near. Now it does point out in verse 18 that we need to be careful to call upon him in truth. That means that there there are ground rules for how we address him how we come into his presence, all of those are spelled out in the scriptures for us. We've got to approach him in the right way, but understand that he is near. And then we can know if we call upon him in truth, verse 19, he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. You might be tempted to say, well, there was a time I asked him for something and he didn't give it to me. You think it's possible that he knew that what you thought you wanted wasn't actually what you wanted? That it wasn't what was actually best for you? That in the midst of you calling and asking, he gave you something that was better for you than what you were asking? You can be sure tonight that God not only hears, but he wants to answer our prayers. God is good. He's near. He wants to hear and answer our prayers. And I love this. He also will hear their cry and will save them. God wants to deploy his incredible power to save. There's a part right there where we could say, hallelujah. Because where would we be without his saving power? Verse 20, the Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. 
Tonight, if you love the Lord, you can be sure that he will preserve you. If you hate the Lord and love your wickedness, you can be sure he will judge you and destroy you. That's what he promises. So extol him tonight for his holiness. Then the refrain in verse 21, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The psalmist repeats how he started the psalm. He says, There's been many reasons for praise that he has mentioned, but now he says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. I'm going to make sure that when I'm speaking, my mouth is speaking the praise of the Lord. This is a good subject for our speech, much better than a lot of the things that we talk about. But then in verse 21, he also invites us to join him in praising the holy name of the Lord forever. He says, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You have flesh? You're a human being? You're alive? Well, then you ought to praise him. And truthfully, it's like the guy with the cowbell at the Penn State game. Banging that bell. And I don't know, it gets you excited. You might not care about Penn State, but you'll care about cheering. You know, there's something about it. When we come to a psalm like this, and the psalmist says, Come and worship the Lord with me. It ought to light a holy fire inside of us to say, I want to praise God. I want to worship him. So tonight, extol the king. Are you in? You want to praise him? He's worthy of it. Let's open our mouths and praise God tonight.